Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. Hey guys, on this day after Independence Day, I think it'd be fitting for us to stop just for a moment and to say thank you. You heard Kyle talk about this earlier, but But we have freedom in this country. We have independence because there are men and women who were brave enough to take on the duty of saying, I'm going to protect this country and protect this freedom. And I know there are some of you watching this right now and you're part of the armed forces or you're one of those who sworn an oath to protect the freedom of this country. And on this beautiful Sunday morning, I just want to tell you, thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for fighting for our freedom. And I think one of the most important things we could do as a people is make the most of the freedom we've been given. And so in honor of those of you who've sacrificed to give us this freedom we have and this independence we have as a country, I want to have a whole sermon that has nothing to do but how do we, with more than what we do to make sure we make the most of this freedom we've been given. To live the most of this life we've been freely given by God and has been protected by so many of you who've worked hard to give us this freedom that we have. And so I'm going to give you today the key to how to make the most of the freedom you've been given. The key to how to make the most of life. You're going to find out it's a really simple key. You might think it's overly simplistic, but I guarantee you it really is a key to make the most of life. Here's what it is. You just got to understand that all of this life is just about getting ready for the next life. That right there is the key of making the most of the life you've been freely given. All of this life is really just about getting ready for the next life. If you keep that in your mind, you will make the most of this life. This life is about preparing for something greater. It's about getting ready for the future that God has for us. And we should live every moment of this life preparing for that future. And I know some of you might say, well, Jason, if I live my whole life preparing for a future, I might miss the experience of the present. And that might be true if we weren't talking about eternity. But what we're talking about is the fact that this brief life we've been given, something the Bible calls a wisp of smoke, here one second, gone the next, this life actually determines what takes place in eternity. And if that's true, then all of this life must be about getting ready for the next life. Maybe you could think of it like getting ready for a road trip. So I literally just got back from a road trip where we went to my wife and my six kids and I took Big Red, our big old 12 passenger bus, and we drove all the way to Ohio to be there, I was officiating my nephew's uh, marriage, first of my nephews to get married. And it was a great honor and experience, but it was really difficult to get ready for this trip. The two weeks leading up to this trip were very difficult, specifically because of what's going on with COVID. We didn't even know if we were going to get to take this trip until just a couple of weeks before we left. And, and when we realized we were going to have to go, there was so much planning to detail out, okay, how far can we get What gas stations are we going to stop at? How clean are they going to be? What's going to be our wipe down process to make sure how we're going to keep the kids masked up? What hotels are we going to stay at? What are their protocols? And all this stuff to get ready for this trip. And the last two weeks were just this flurry of activity getting ready. We had to get the tire fixed on Big Red because one of them had a a little nick in the side of it and I wanted to make sure it was ready for the road trip. We had to put a stop on the mail. We had to get a house sitter to come watch the dog and cat and make sure everything was taken care of. We had to do a mountain of laundry. I had a a zone out in my irrigation system and and I knew we just laid down some new sod that the Texas heat would just fry it if we didn't do something about it. So I had to replace the irrigation system. It was thing after thing after thing getting ready for this road trip. 
to be honest with you, the last couple of weeks before the trip, my mind was consumed with all the details of getting ready for this trip. It just seemed like my life revolved around getting ready for this road trip. And that's really a perfect picture of what it's supposed to be like for you and I to live this life we've been given. This life right now that we have is supposed to revolve around getting ready for what's coming next, for the road trip, if you will, for the life to come. And I think, I think this is a major issue that a lot of us have. We too often think that this life is all there is when it's not. We think that this life is the big dance, but this isn't the big dance. This is just the warm up to the big dance. Eternity is the big dance. All of this brief life is really just about getting ready for the next. We have to understand this life is not about being comfortable. It's not about pleasure. It's not about making money. It's not about watching sports. It's not even about being happy as great as that is. If eternity is true, and I believe this book says it is, and I believe what this book says, and what we do in this life determines what happens in eternity, then you and I must know that all of this life, however brief or long it may be, is about getting ready for the next life. It's the two weeks leading up to the road trip. That's all this brief life is. In fact, this is the very message that the Apostle Paul wants to give Timothy at the very last part of his first letter to him. So I want you to, if you have your Bibles, hopefully you can grab your Bible or your phone, whatever you're using, and go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 11 through the end of the first letter. But as we're digging in, I want to, as we, we if those of you who are joining us, you know, uh, if you've been a part of this church, we're going through 1 and 2 Timothy chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're going to finish up this first letter, but it's a contrast to what we studied last week. You heard Pastor Ender in verses 3 through 10 talk about, about Paul pointing out the things that we're not supposed to do the wrong way to live life, if you will. This week in verses 11 through 21, he's gonna talk about the right way to live life. It's a contrast to what we looked at last week. And he's gonna talk about how to get ready for the road trip. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump in. First Timothy chapter six, beginning in verse 11. Here's what it says. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Okay, so in this first part of this passage right here, you see Paul start off with four rapid fire imperatives, four commands in verses 11 and 12. He says, you got to flee this. You got to pursue that. You got to fight the good fight. You got to take hold of eternal life. Just boom, 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 rapid fire commands. And it can sound like these commands are the main point of this passage, but they're really not. The main point actually comes in verse 14. These, these rapid fire commands are the to-do list. They're the packing list for what's really coming, the road trip, the important thing in verse 14. Verse 14, where he talked about being unstained and free from reproach, he says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's saying Jesus Christ is coming back and we best be ready for when he comes back. In fact, this is the very thing that Jesus himself taught. If you look at what Jesus taught, if you were to go back to the Gospel of Matthew, in fact, keep your space in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to return there and flip over to Matthew chapters 24 and 25. If you were to read just those two chapters, you would hear Jesus tell the same basic idea in story after story after story. 
In fact, he kind of gives the summary of it in verses 42 through 44 of Matthew 24. Listen to what he says here. He says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Very simple point. Christ will return That's for sure, and no one's going to know when it is, so we best be ready for it. Then he tells another story in verses 45 through 51 to to close out chapter 24 about two servants. One of them was a good servant who was about his master's business. One of them was a bad servant who was getting drunk and beating the other servants and doing terrible things. And it says the master came when no one expected it, found the good servant doing good and rewarded him, found the bad servant doing bad and punished him. What's his point? You got to be ready for when Christ returns because you never know when the master's coming. Then you flip over to chapter 25, verses one through 13. He gives another story about 10 virgins. And he says, the groom had gone away and these 10 young ladies were supposed to be ready for the groom to return. Five of them had oil in their lamps. They were ready. Five of them didn't have oil. And it says, the announcement came, the groom is coming. And the five who didn't have oil went running, tearing off to go get oil. But the groom came when the other five were off. The five who were ready were let into the banquet and the door was locked shut. The other five come back and they can't get in because it's locked. The moral of the story, you never know when the groom is coming, so you best be ready. Then he tells the next story in verses 14 through 30 in Matthew 25. This is what's called the parable of the talents. It's a story Jesus told about a master who gave three servants different quantities, large sums of money. And he says, I want you to do well with this money. I'll come back. And the master leaves on a journey. And it says two of these the servants did incredible work, earning even more money. They were working hard to be ready for their master's return. But one bad servant, he wasn't willing to do it. He buried all the money he'd been given, didn't do anything to make more from it. It says the, the master came back. He rewards the two good servants. He punishes the bad servant. Point of the story, you got to be ready because the master's coming back. Then he tells one last story in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. It's the final judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And he says, the son of man will return and he'll separate the sheep and the goats. The sheep will be those who were found doing good. They were kind and generous and, and benevolent toward others. And they did it in the name of Jesus and they'll be punished. But the goats, those were those who were stingy and greedy and unwilling to help others and cruel. And they'll be sent to eternal punishment. And the moral of the story is the son of man is returning. We must be ready with how we live our lives. Jesus tells story after story after story with the same basic meaning. Jesus will return. We have to live this life ready for his return because when he returns, he's coming with eternal life. And this life is about being ready for the next life. Jesus taught this explicitly and Paul just picks back up on it. So you go back over to 1 Timothy chapter six. And Paul is telling young Timothy, Timothy, be ready for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming and you must be ready. In fact, Paul in verses 15 and 16 says, I want you to know how certain I am. Listen to how he describes God. Verse 15, he says, he says, after the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You hear Paul almost exploding in a hymn of praise as he's talking about the sovereignty and the power of Almighty God. And here's his point. He's saying, Timothy, listen to me. Here's what I know for sure. Our God is sovereign. He is King of kings and Lord of lords and he is coming back. 
And when he comes back, nothing will stop him. No one will get in his way. All we can do is be ready. So young Timothy, be ready. This is the word he's trying to give him. Christ is coming back, be ready. Now that we understand the main point, now we can go back to verses 11 and 12. And we can see these four commands that were given. You got to flee, you got to pursue, you got to fight, you got to hold on. These four commands were just instructions. They were the to-do list, the preparation for the big show, getting ready for what's to come. So now that we understand these commands, we can go back and examine them and, and know what Paul is trying to teach Timothy. So go back to verse 11 with me. He said, but as for you, O, o man of God, flee these things. Now you don't know what the these things is referring to without the context of last week. The these things is referring to what Pastor Ender covered in verses three through 10. It's referring to the love of money through quarreling, slander, arrogance. In other words, all those things that are evil and unrighteous and bad, flee those. If you see something evil, run from it like you do someone who's coughing who you think might have the Rona. Just run for your life. Flee everything that's evil. But what I love about Paul is he's always balanced. He says, yeah, flee these things. But he also says, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You got to run from what's bad, but you got to run to what's good. Run to do what makes God happy, what delights his heart, what makes a difference in this world. He's saying you always have to have a balance between those two. Now, I got to be honest with you. As I, as I look at this passage of scripture, what hits me is I think there are a lot of Christians who don't have balance in this. There are so many people who think the Christian life is really just about a bunch of don'ts. They, they minimize the Christian life to, to this rule set. Look, as long as you don't get drunk, as long as you don't sleep around, as long as you don't lie or cheat or steal, as long as you don't look at porn, as long as you don't commit adultery, as long as you don't do those things, then you'll be a good Christian. Now listen, those are great things not to do. Let me go ahead and encourage you not to do those things. Praise God for not doing those. But if you think all of the Christian life is summarized by just not doing those things, you've missed the very faith that Christ died for. The Christian life is so much more about what we do than it is what we don't do. Jesus said, do to others what you would want them to do for you. It's an active thing. It's a proactive thing. And this is why the Christian life isn't just about, about fleeing what's bad. It's about pursuing what's good. It's about being kind and generous and good and loving and faithful and steadfast and gentle. It's about action, which is why Paul gives Timothy an incredible example in verses 17 through 19 in this passage. He gives him this counterbalance using a very tangible illustration, using wealth. He says, let me, let me show you with wealth that you need to flee something and you need to pursue something. Do both of those. Look at verses 17 through 19. Read them with me. He says, but as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Right there, you hear what he's talking about at the end. He says, I want you to store up treasure for the future. Live this life in preparation for the next. Take hold of that which is truly life, he says. And he says, here's how you do it. Use an example of wealth. You gotta flee what's bad. You gotta pursue what's good. So he starts off by fleeing what's bad. He says, listen, tell the people who are rich in this present age to do two things, not to be haughty, and not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. He's got to flee those two things. Let's look at the first one. He says, charge them not to be haughty. That word haughty in the Greek is actually two Greek words put together. It's hupalos, which means high, and phreneo, which means to think. It means to think high of oneself, to have an overly exalted view of self. 
what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is to help the people in Ephesus understand the great risk that comes with money. Now in Ephesus, there was a lot of wealth because Ephesus was a port city. It was a very wealthy city, which meant some of these Christians in these house churches were wealthy. And there was a great risk with their wealth, a danger. He wasn't saying wealth itself was bad. He was saying there's risk with it, temptation that comes with it. And one of them was to think that you're better than somebody else just because you have, to have an overly exalted view of self because you have when they have not. Listen, this is actually a very common human issue. It is very simple, even if it's understated, even if we don't realize we're doing it, if we live in a bigger house than someone else, if we have nicer clothes than someone else, we drive a nicer car than somebody else, we own more property than somebody else, if we have more possessions than somebody else, we start to think, even if we don't realize it, that we're better than they are. We have a high view of self because of wealth. And listen, the truth is, that's an incredible danger because there is no one who has more value because of money than someone else. They are all equal in God's eyes. And he says, you gotta help people recognize this danger so they can flee the danger of self-exaltation. That's the first danger they gotta flee. But there's a second danger, he said, and not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Here's what he's saying. He's saying it is so easy to think that money will make you feel safe and secure. It's, It's true for us. I mean, right now in the middle of this pandemic, There are people losing their jobs right and left. And there are so many of us who think, if I just could have a little bit more money in my savings account, then I'll feel a little safer. If I could just secure myself a little more and protect my family, then I'd feel at peace. We think that money is gonna make us feel peaceful and certain. But there's only one thing certain about money. It's that it is exceptionally uncertain. That's it. And if you look at the market right now, it is so up and down. There are people losing money right and left. It is not certain at all. In fact, I I read a terrible story just a couple of weeks ago about a young man named Alexander Kearns. He was was doing some investment on a new app called Robinhood where you can make kind of high risk, high yield investments with very little collateral. And you do investments on an app constantly doing it. So he was making these really high yield risks, uh, high risk uh, investments and been doing it for about a month. After just a few short weeks, he pulls up his app and he realizes it says that he is, $730,000 in the negative. And this young man realizes he's never gonna be able to pay that off. And you know what he does? He takes his own life out of despair. Why? Because he was trusting in the uncertainty of riches. Listen, that tragedy should wake us up to realize that there is no way we should ever put our hope in the uncertainty of riches. Here one second, gone the next. It'll never be where we find our peace. And Paul is trying to protect Timothy. He said, teach the church not to put their certainty in wealth, but in God, flee from the the uncertainty of wealth. Listen, even if you could secure all the money in the world, you can't take it with you to the next. And if this life is about preparing for the next, there's no certainty in wealth. He's saying, don't do that. Don't set your hopes up for failure to be dashed. That's the bad news. But there is good news. There is an antidote to materialism and confidence in money and, and the love of money. It's this beautiful little concept called radical generosity. You see, Paul doesn't say just flee from haughtiness and flee from the, the putting your certainty in, in money. He says, I want you to pursue what's good. He says, you gotta be rich in good works. You gotta be generous and ready to share. And here's his point. If you are generous, if you are ready to share the money that God has given you, then your money does not own you, you own your money. It's in its right place. It doesn't have a grip on you and you can use that wealth for good purposes. 
But the moment you become stingy, the moment you are no longer willing to give to the church, willing to help people out when they have need, the, no, the, willing, the moment you're no longer willing to do good, that's the moment your money now owns you. It's got its hooks in you and it's destroying you. And so he's saying, you gotta be generous. I said, here's what's so interesting. Your level of generosity is actually a litmus test to what you truly believe. Here, here's what's an interesting idea for you. If you tell me you believe in eternity, but you're not willing to be generous, I will question that belief 100 out of 100 times. Because the only way you're gonna be generous is if you believe it's worth it in eternal life. I mean, take this road trip that I just took, for example. You know, on this road trip, for about three, four months, we didn't know if we were gonna be able to go on this road trip or not because COVID had just hit. And we didn't know if my nephew was gonna get married. We didn't know what was gonna take place. And so all we knew was that we were gonna have to wait. We weren't gonna send any money to any hotels. We weren't gonna make any plans. We weren't gonna spend any money until we knew for sure that we would be going on this trip to Ohio. But the moment we knew we were certainly gonna go, all of a sudden we started sending our money to hotels. We started sending our money to get things ready. We started repairing things on the car so that we can make this road trip. We didn't send money until we were certain. But the moment we were certain, we started sending it on to prepare for what was to come. It is no different with eternal life. If you are not certain about eternal life, you will not invest in it. You will not be generous. But the moment you are certain about your eternal life, you will send money ahead because you know it's gonna be worth it. That's why generosity is a litmus test to what you truly believe. Do you believe eternity or not? But listen, I know it's hard. It's hard to be generous because everything in this world we live in fights against that generosity. We live in a country here in the United States of America that has made a God out of money. We idolize wealth. And in this context we live in, it is so difficult to be generous. It's a fight. I get it. But Paul, it was a fight for him too. He got it too. That's why he moves on from verse 11 to verse 12 to talk about the fight. I love this verse. Let me read it for you again as we look at the last two imperatives. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I love that statement. Fight the good fight of the faith, Timothy. I can almost picture Paul grabbing Timothy by the scruff of the neck saying, Timothy, stand up and fight, man. Be a man. Stand up for the battle. Yes, Timothy, I know this isn't easy. I know it's complicated. I know it's just as hard today as it was yesterday. And let me tell you, Timothy, it's gonna be just as hard tomorrow as it was today, but it's a good fight. It's a worthy fight. Why? Because heaven is the reward. Fight the good fight of the faith. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That word in Greek, take hold, it's a strong word. It means to violently grab something. I can almost picture this image of this guy grabbing a bull by the horn, just wrestling that baby down and fighting it, taking hold of it. Paul is trying to tell Timothy, you got to grab life and you got to squeeze every last drop of it you can. You got to live every single moment for eternal life. It's a fight, Timothy, but it's a fight, a fight worth fighting. Fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life. Listen, this is why the life that we live right now has to be lived as a fight this life cannot be about ease or comfort or convenience because it's a fight. I've heard it said before that if you really want to think about the Christian life, think about being on a battleship. Don't think about being on a cruise ship. You know, when you're on a cruise ship, you have one goal, relaxation, pleasure. That's all you're about. But when you're on a battleship, your one goal is victory. When you're on a battleship, 
you're not eating your, your body weight at a buffet table and maxing and relaxing on a deck chair trying to get a suntan. When you're on a battleship, you are dressed for war. You are ready for the fight. You aren't wandering aimlessly at sea. You are heading toward an enemy that you know is real because you're going to fight the fight. On a cruise ship, all you're doing is just wandering aimlessly at the sea. And your biggest priority is to figure out what's on the menu the next buffet when it comes. Nothing could be further apart than a battleship and a cruise ship. And yet there are so many Christians who read this book and somehow think this life is about being on a cruise ship. They think the Christian life is about pleasure and comfort and convenience. But it's not. The Christian life is about a fight. It's about a battle. Because one day Christ is going to return and eternal life is going to come with him. And when Christ returns, we want to be ready. We want to be a soldier saluting the general as he comes. We don't want to be having a food baby on a, on a chair getting a sunblock and sunburn while we're looking up at nothingness. We want to be ready when Christ returns. And the only way we're going to do that is we live every single moment of every single day ready for his return. We got to be ready. We got to squeeze every second out of life because Christ is coming back and eternal life is real. You ready to live that kind of life? <laughs> Can I be honest with you? I don't think I am. Hey, it's really easy for me to pontificate over here and preach this message to you about how you got to live every moment. I got to tell you, if I'm honest with you, it's really hard for me to live it. The Lord slapped me in the face the other day and reminded me how much I don't do this, how much I don't live this way. This was a few months ago. It was, uh, it was on a Saturday. Now, if you know anything about my family, if you were here back in February, we did a sermon series about the Sabbath, and I shared about our family practice where we try to take the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, which would be sundown Saturday night to sundown Sunday night, and we try to do no work. We just rest. We try to worship the Lord, relax, and enjoy his presence. And so Saturday for us is the time of getting ready. We do a lot of chores, mow the lawn, try to get everything done and finished so that by the time Sabbath starts, we're ready to rest and relax. So this particular Saturday, I'd gotten most of my work done pretty early. I'd gotten the sermon together and the lawn was mowed, the house was cleaned. It was about 4.30. We were gonna start Sabbath at about 6.30. And so I, I had some time. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna tackle this project. My kid's uh, bedroom, they have a, a bathroom, a Jack and Jill bathroom by my kid's bedroom. And the, the faucet was, was leaking. And I'd bought a faucet about the week or two before. And I said, all right, I got a couple hours. I wanna fix the faucet. So I said, hey, Virginia, I got a couple hours. I'm gonna go fix the faucet in the kid's uh, bathroom, okay? And she said, Jason, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, we got Sabbath starting soon and, and I, I know we wanna stop everything and so I, I, I want the kids to have a working faucet. Don't start it. Quasi-insulted, I said, baby, I've changed so many faucets. I can do this in 30 minutes. I got two hours. That's not gonna be a problem. She said, Jason, these projects always take four times as long as you think. And I said, well, perfect. I think it's gonna take 30 minutes. I got two hours, so it's gonna be great. And she foolishly trusted me and said, okay, fine, go for it. So I go up there and I take the old faucet out and you know, I'm, I'm humming along and I start putting the new faucet on and I realize, uh-oh, I'm missing a couple of tubes. I, I gotta go get some hoses uh, at the hardware store. And so it's a bit about 30, 45 minutes. I still got an hour and 15, hour and a half. So I, I pop up and I, I go to Virginia and I say, hey baby, I'm missing a couple of hoses. I gotta go run to the hardware store. She said, I knew it. See, it's gonna take too long. You're not gonna be ready. I said, baby, I got this. I'm just going to go to the hardware store and I'll be right back. She said, okay, fine, go. So I was going to the hardware store to, to Lowe's. If you know the one right there off East, East Chase and 30, just a little bit north of 30. That's the Lowe's that I normally go to. 
And so I, I, I book it in my car to head over there. I, I got an hour and 15 or so to get the hoses, come back, finish it. But I, I got this, but I'm gonna hustle. I'm on a mission, man. I'm gonna fix this faucet before Sabbath starts. I'm gonna prove to my wife I can do this thing. And so I'm driving up East Chase and, and East Chase goes over 30 on a bridge. And as I'm driving over that bridge, I notice there's a young man standing right there at the highest part of the bridge, right on the edge toward the highway. And he's standing at the, the very edge and he's got this massive flag. He's in early, early 20s, he looks like, and he's just waving this flag and he's screaming at all the cars that are driving down beneath him. And as I'm driving over the bridge, I'm going, that dude looks crazy, man. He's gonna hurt somebody or himself. Someone, someone should do something about that guy. But it wasn't gonna be me because I'm on a mission to fix this faucet before Sabbath starts. So I head over the bridge and I make my way over to Lowe's and I pull into the Lowe's parking lot. And as I'm walking in, I'm, I'm hightailing in there because I got to get these hoses and prove Virginia that I can do this. Right as I'm about to enter the door, somebody walks up to me and he says, hey man, hey man, I, I need some help, dude. You got some money you can spare? Now listen, here's what you got to know about me. I don't ever give cash to anybody who asks for money simply because I don't know what they're going to do with it. I've, I've learned over the years that I really want to help somebody out. It's much better for me to buy something for them. If they're hungry to buy them food, if they say they need gas to actually fill their car up with gas so that I know the money's going to the right place. And so I don't ever give pe people cash, but I try to help them out. But I just didn't have time right now because I had to get this, these hoses and get back before Sabbath started. So I said, hey man, I'm sorry, I don't, give, I don't give money to strangers, which was true, just really short. And then I kept on going and walked in and, and I felt weird about it. Like, man, I don't know if I, I handled that right, but I was on a mission. So I go back to the plumbing section. I find the hoses. I go check out. As I'm walking out, I noticed that that, other, that guy had walked up to somebody else and tried to ask him for money. He wasn't looking at me. I wasn't looking at him. I just walk out to my car and I start driving off. But the whole time, I just have this sense inside, like I'm missing the mark, like I'm not doing what's right. But I suppress it because I don't have time for that. I got to get back so I can fix the faucet and show my wife I'm going to be ready for Sabbath. And as I, I pull out of the Lowe's parking lot, I get back on East Chase heading south. I'm going over the bridge. I see something that utterly humbles me. So that guy who had been there waving the flag over the highway, he's now on the side of the road, now off the bridge. And there's another young man talking to him. And this other young man has a Bible open in his hands. And he is obviously sharing the gospel with that dude who'd been waving that flag and acting all crazy. That guy is on a mission to seek and save the lost. He sees somebody who's in trouble, who's having issues. And he says, I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna do something about it. And in that moment, I realize I was on the wrong mission. I was on a mission to fix a faucet and this guy was on a mission to seek and save the lost. And all of a sudden it hit me. If Christ were to return right now, he's gonna find me on the wrong mission. He's gonna find that guy who's saluting the general ready for battle. He's gonna find me on a cruise liner trying to get ready for my safe little Sabbath in my safe little home with my safe little family, my safe little rituals. And I'm gonna be missing the mark because somehow I've gotten back to the cruise liner. I don't even know how it happened. But so what if I'm a little bit late for my Sabbath? So what if my kids don't have a working faucet for one day and I fix it a little bit later? Is it really that tragic? And yet I'm so unwilling to stop and help those who have need because I'm living for myself and my own family, even in my own religiosity. And I realize I'm missing the mark. I'm not living ready for Christ's return. I'm not living for eternity. Listen, that, that broke me because I realize I'm not living this life the way I should be. I don't know, do you struggle with that? I don't know, maybe I'm the only one. 
But I'm not the only one in this world to ever live that way because apparently Timothy had the same struggle. That's why Paul had to look at him and say, Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you've been given. And then he finishes up in verses 20 and 21 with one last military instruction. Listen to what he says. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. I love what he says. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. Stand like a sentinel, like a soldier and guard the deposit with every fiber of your being. Now, most scholars believe that that deposit is referring to his belief in the gospel of Jesus. It refers back to verse 12 when he says, you got to take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And then it says about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That good confession, many scholars believe is referring to Timothy's baptism. When he was baptized, making a confession in the presence of many witnesses of his belief in the gospel. You know, baptism is the, the most beautiful picture of the gospel. Because when you see someone who's baptized, they go under the water and it's a picture of their death and burial. They are saying, my sin has killed me. My rebellion against God is over. I can't live any longer. The old me must die as I confess my sin and I'm buried with Christ. But when they come out of that water and they're washed clean, it's a picture of Christ washing all of our sins away. And we are now coming under his lordship. It is a good confession of faith in Christ Jesus. It's our declaration of belief in the gospel. And Paul's saying, Timothy, guard that belief with every fiber of your being. Guard that good deposit, that confession you made. Because when you believe the gospel, Timothy, you will live for eternity. And I believe Paul is saying the same thing to you and to me. He's saying, don't take your eyes off of that good confession. Those of you watching this who have been baptized because of your faith in Christ Jesus, you've made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's saying, don't forget your confession. Don't forget your faith in the gospel. Guard that deposit because when you believe the gospel, you'll believe eternity. And when you believe eternity, you'll live every life, every second of this life, every moment you have in this life for the sake of that eternity. Guard it. One of the best ways I can think of guarding that deposit that's been given to us is simply by remembering the gospel. And so we're gonna remember the gospel the best way I know how, by taking the Lord's Supper. Because when we take the Lord's Supper, we're gonna look in the bread at the symbol of the body of Christ that was crucified for us. We're gonna look at the cup as a symbol of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And we're gonna remember the payment that was made to secure our eternity. We don't have to worry about messing this thing up. We can't screw up eternal life because Christ earned it. On the cross, he screamed out, it is finished because he knew it was over. He had secured our eternal life. And when we remember that and we believe that, we'll live for it. And so in a moment, we're gonna take that confession and we're gonna remember it by taking the Lord's Supper. But before we do, listen, I believe there's some of you who are watching this and right now, you are not living for eternity because you're not sure you're going to go there. You're hoping you go to eternal life. You're hoping you get to go to heaven. And, and maybe you're going, I'm just praying the good outweighs the bad in my life. Can I go ahead and tell you it's never going to work that way? Because the shame and the rebellion that every single one of us has in our sin is infinite because we have rebelled against a holy God. We have sinned against a holy God. And it requires an infinite payment, something we cannot make. We will never be good enough on our own for it. We can't do enough good deeds. We'll never make it to heaven that way. There's only one way to make it to eternal life. It is by confessing our sin and placing our faith in Christ and his work on the cross. 
and by making our own confession of faith in Christ Jesus in the presence of many witnesses. And so if you're watching this and you have not declared your faith in Christ Jesus through baptism, I believe maybe you need to make the good confession of faith in the presence of many witnesses. So we're gonna have an opportunity, Lord willing, this fall, September 13th, we have a baptism celebration planned at the Viridian. My own daughter is gonna be one of those who's gonna be baptized, making the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But I believe there are some of you who are watching this and you too need to make the good confession of the faith. You need to say, I'm ready to place my faith in Christ Jesus. I want eternity and I know Christ can secure it for me. And so I'm willing to ask for forgiveness. I'm willing to place my faith in him and let him be my Lord and my savior. If you're ready to do that, in a moment, you're gonna see instructions on the screen that are gonna tell you how to take that step of faith, how to get ready to connect with us so we can prepare you for baptism so you can make the good confession, so you can guard the deposit. But I pray you'll set your heart now and say, I'm ready, Lord. I'm not gonna postpone any longer, I'm ready. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. In a moment, I'm gonna pray. And after I pray, you're gonna see a slide that's gonna tell you what you need to do if you're ready to make the good confession, if you're ready to trust in Christ and schedule your baptism. For those of you who are already baptized believers during that, that time, you're gonna be able to go off and get your Lord's Supper supplies and bring them back for everybody in your home who's gonna take it together. And then we're gonna sing a song together where we're gonna worship the Lord. Kyle's gonna lead us to celebrating our King. And after that song is over, Pastor Ender's gonna lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Prepare your hearts and let's remember why we have the faith that we have. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness toward us in Christ. Lord, I pray that our hope would be secure in our eternal life and that we would know this life is just about getting ready for the next. And we would squeeze every last drop out of this life preparing for eternal life. Lord, help us look at the body and the blood through the Lord's Supper and remember that our faith is strong because our eternity is secure by the work of Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful to serve you. Lord, for those, of, those who are watching who are wrestling with whether, whether to place their faith in Christ Jesus or not, God, compel them to take that step of faith. Lord, we love you. We live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.